When travel writer Paul Theroux gets ready for an adventure, his first stop is at the library. Anyone's travel should begin with reading, I think. Reading about travel, looking at maps, in a library, reading. In just a bit, Paul tells us some of what he's learned from a lifetime of global travels. I got shot at in Masabit, northern Kenya. I got robbed. It was difficult, but I had something to write about. There's a mask-wearing tradition that goes back centuries in Bulgaria. It's part of a festival where people in elaborate costumes go door-to-door to scare away the evil that winter can bring. All the people in the villages, every village, put on masks, and every village actually has unique masks made of feather, made of fur, different beasts, hats, scary. They celebrate the culture, they celebrate the folklore by dancing in the middle of the streets, in the yards of the houses. And listeners share their travel dreams with us in the hour ahead. Come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. He's been called the world's most perceptive travel writer. Coming up, Paul Theroux tells us how he's been exploring the world for more than 50 years, from a Peace Corps stint in Africa to taking trains across continents and road-tripping the hinterlands of Dixie and Mexico. And in just a minute, guides from Sofia tell us about the colorful festivals Bulgarians enjoy to celebrate their history and to usher in the changing seasons. Later in the hour, we'll check in with listeners to hear how they're handling canceled travel plans and what they have to look forward to when they can safely go overseas again. Bulgaria is a small and mysterious country. It's one of those lands that Americans just don't visit very much. It's long-faced east. In fact, in communist times, it was famously subservient to the USSR. But of course, there's lots more to see in Bulgaria, and you can learn about a fascinating culture when you go there. Two Bulgarian guides joined us in our studio now to help give us a better insight and a little better appreciation of the culture of Bulgaria. We're joined by Stefan Bozhajev and Yuri Boyanin. Stefan and Yuri, thanks for being here. Thank you, Rick. Our pleasure, Rick. Now, Yuri, Americans, we don't know as much about Bulgaria as we know about Poland or Germany or, or Italy or Greece. Why is that? Well, it's not in the news. It's a tiny country of about 7 million people. Probably a not, of, not a lot of Bulgarians have emigrated to the United States like Polish people and Greek Not so people. many, no. When I think of Bulgaria, I think of, a back in the communist times, a little country that was more friendly with Moscow than the other countries in Eastern Europe. In fact, your leader, a little sort of a communist dictator, Tudor Zhivkov, Zhivkov, yeah. yep, Zhivkov, he actually proposed that Bulgaria join the USSR and become the 16th Republic. Is that true? That, yes, that's true. In the early 1960s, Zhivkov wanted us to be so close to the Soviets, so he proposed to become the 16th Republic. Why so subservient to the USSR? You know, because as a small country, we have always tried to find our big brother. Because you're right there in the middle of the Habsburgs and Russia and, and the Ottomans. In the middle of, of all those uh, crossroads of and different you're, civilizations. You're a cute little land, so easy to gobble up if you're a big giant country. Absolutely. But fortunately, the Soviets were in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis, so they were busy and they were not interested oh, so, in having so, more trouble so, on themselves. Uh, Khrushchev or whoever was the dictator said, yeah, we'll call said you no. back later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a joke in, back in communist time that the biggest animal in the world was the Bulgarian pig, because the head was in Bulgaria and the body was in Moscow. Why was that funny so many years ago? Imagine the pig. Uh, when you have the body of the pig, all the good meat is there. So we produced all the good stuff, food, and it was exported to the Soviet Union. So practically, 
This is the reason why still nowadays in Russia they remember all those fruits and very fondly in Bulgaria. All yes, the good stuff that came from Bulgaria so the big shots in yeah. Moscow could And the it. wine as well. Of course, all the Bulgarian wine, all the best Bulgarian wine went to Russia. Well, today you don't have that problem. No. And you've got wonderful Not traditional food and drink. And, and Yuri, what is one thing we should remember about the food of Bulgaria when we visit? Incredibly fresh. Everything is fresh. What Straight about, out of the garden. What's a traditional, a traditional meal? I, I remember some beautiful soups. You must have a salad. You must start your meal with a salad mm-hmm. and a little bit of brandy as well that goes with the salad. We always have the strong alcohol first and then we go to the wine. And then we go to the beer. You start with the strong alcohol. Yes, we do. We do. Why is that, Stefan? It is deep tradition. What my parents believe is that when we have a strong alcohol, it will open your perceptions. The food, this is the best way to taste it. When you have a few sips of our traditional brandy called rakia. So when I'm cooking, if people have the strong alcohol first, they can actually eat my food. It helps. It helps a lot. (laughs) Bulgaria is the only country in the European Union that has the Cyrillic alphabet. I was in Bulgaria one year on May 24th. That's a big celebration. Uh, Why does Bulgaria have this um, unique alphabet? And what's the cultural background of that? I remember that day because we were actually filming the Bulgaria episode and we were in my hometown. So it is really important to understand this different uh, alphabet because this is an alphabet which helped to spread the Christianity. Because it's Cyrillic is named after Saint Saint Cyril. Cyril. And uh, who was his sidekick? And his brother Methodius. Methodius and Cyril. So they innovated this alphabet so they could write down the Holy Holy Scriptures scriptures and people could read them. Exactly. In idea to have the Christianity close to the heart, close to the soul, to understand the holy wisdom, to understand the words written there. What century was that? This was in the 800s, 855. And to this day, it is more than a religious thing. It's a cultural thing to celebrate the fact that you have this unique, well, it's not that unique. Other other countries have it. It's the same in Russia? It's the same in Russia. It's even the same as in Mongolia, Rick, actually. It's used all the way to Mongolia, yeah. And everybody is out. It's a school holiday. The children are dancing and celebrating. Dancing, celebrating. They're all in the streets. Actually, this is the happiest festival holiday in Bulgaria. Much more important than all the other political uh, holidays because people, they celebrate with heart. They celebrate the alphabet. They celebrate the literacy. So as a Bulgarian, it's a day where you feel really good, I would imagine. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. What is the name of the holiday? Actually, the name of the holiday is the day of the Cyrillic alphabet and the Slavic culture. Oh, so it is Slavic culture as well as Cyrillic. And we need a little extra promotion for that because you're surrounded by a lot of other absolutely uh, influences. Absolutely. That's why we celebrate it uh, really with our hearts. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're celebrating Bulgaria with our hearts right now with our guides, Stefan Bozhejev and Yuri Boyanin. You know, when we think about Bulgaria, I think of a lot of pagan and Christian and medieval rituals, lots of color, lots of festivities. You have some great festivals that way, for instance, to welcome the spring. Stefan, can you tell us about how do you welcome the spring historically in Bulgaria? It's a very beautiful and fine tradition. On March the 1st, we put something like a small amulet, something like a string of red and white. This is how we celebrate the upcoming uh, spring. The red, this is for good health. White, 
this is for long life. So we put it on our wrist, typically. But when we remove it from our wrist, when we see a migrating bird, most probably that would be a stork, and then we put it on a special tree. It should be a blossoming fruit tree. And that's why when you're walking around, especially in the countryside, you can see a lot of those amulets in white and red on the trees, which means we are not waiting for the spring anymore. The spring is here. And in spring and summer, you can see a lot of storks as well. Every village, every village has a lot of storks. And the village people, they believe that the storks bring them luck. So they make sure that the stork nests are solidly built. So the storks can come back and oh, you yes. can have more luck? Every year they go back, actually, to the same village. Do storks bring babies in your tradition? Because I think we, they do. We, I think they actually yeah. Yes. Oh, yes, in absolutely. My, and, in think, my town, the storks, that's mm-hmm. where babies come from, mm-hmm. is the stork. Yeah, yeah and this is uh, what my parents told me, how the stork brought me There's to no, my home. Yeah, they, don't need they brought me as well. <laughs> the elaborate rituals and festivals of Bulgaria tell us a lot about their history. Our guides are Stefan Bozajev and Yuri Boyanin from Liuba Tours in Sofia. They run a travel company for the Balkans and Central Asia, which was created by Yuri's parents right after the fall of communism. Yuri, we just talked about welcoming the spring. How traditionally, back in the Middle Ages and so on, did Bulgarians get through the long, dark, dreary winter? At the height of winter, actually, when it was pizza cold, snow and ice outside, we have this festival actually of all the people in the villages every village put on masks and every village actually has unique masks made of feather made of fur different beasts heads scary and the idea was to actually chase the winter away chase that evil spirit and prepare for the spring actually and this is still something for those who travel in winter and we don't have a lot of travelers in winter as it's of course it's cold although with global warming, it may become warmer soon. But every village has the mummers, and they go from house to house. So these are mummers. I've heard yeah. of that before. They're the called kukiri in Bulgarian kukiri. language. Is this related to carnival, the time before Lent? Somewhat similar, yes. You can also find a little bit of Christian roots, as mm-hmm. that was the time when you could actually put that mask, mm-hmm. and you could do pranks on the priests, for instance. Okay, so Any you other day, you could not do that. And Yuri, what is the name of that festival again? Kukiri. 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 Okay. Stefan, what is one more way that we should be able to celebrate and enjoy uh, Bulgarian folklore? There are different ways to celebrate uh, our folklore as an important part of our culture. But once in every five years, in a small town in the mountains, Koprivstica is the name of the town, there are more than 10,000 people from all around Bulgaria and the world gathering for three days, singing, dancing. Uh, It's full of life. It's the biggest one, but in every single village. Is this in, what what season is this? It it is in August. It is in early August. It's good that it is high in the mountains, so it is not very hot there. And this is the best escape from the big cities. And uh, when we go there, what would we experience? What will we see? You will see six stages all around the town, up in the foothills of the mountain. People dressed in different folklore costumes from all of our regions in Bulgaria. But... The biggest one is not on the formal stages because people, they celebrate the culture, they celebrate the folklore by dancing in the middle of the streets, in the yards of the houses, in the gardens, really living the time of their life there. Man, oh man, there is so much cultural uh, festivities going on in Bulgaria. This has been fun talking about it. I'd like to close just with one of your, each of your best childhood memories of a traditional festival. Uh, Yuri, when you were a child, what do you remember as the most exciting happy time? 
It would have actually been the one in Kupreštica, as I remember. I was there in 95. You went there? I was there in 2000, yeah. Every every single one. It And I remember like that. that the first one was very cold, actually. Very, very cold, because the place is high in the mountains and the people that these fires, actually, and they were dancing all night long around the fires. And this was just, I was seven years old back then, and I still remember it very fondly. And Stefan? My memory probably is related to the Epiphany Day in early January, when they were in a nearby town, all the men not sleeping all night long, drinking a bit, and then early in the morning, directly going into the freezing waters of the river and starting dancing our traditional dance, Horo. January 6th, January 6th, jumping into the cold river yeah, and celebrating. What were they celebrating? They were celebrating that it's winter, but they're still alive and full of health. Fantastic. Stefan Bozhejev, Yuri Boyanin, thanks so much for a, a look, a little look at a country that we don't know enough about, Bulgaria. Blagodarie. Mola. Thanks, Rick. One of today's most celebrated travel writers, Paul Theroux, joins us next to tell us about his lifetime of travels. And later in the hour, we check in with listeners at 877-333-RICK on Travel with Rick Steves. Paul Theroux has spent a lifetime of traveling and 50 years writing travel books on the road. He's taken us on the Great Railway Bazaar across Asia, across Africa on the Dark Star Safari, intimately into Uganda, Malawi, the Mosquito Coast, and eastern Nicaragua, across the deep south of the United States, and now with his newest novel, Along the U.S.-Mexican Border, on the Mexican side. That book is On the Plain of Snakes, A Mexican Journey. Paul joins us now in our studio to share some lessons that he's picked up over that amazing career. Paul, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure, Rick. Boy, 50 years of great travels, and uh, I don't think you're slowing down. Uh, you know, you've taken us on so many trips, too many to mention, but for those of us who don't know all of the books you've written, just take a minute, for have some fun here. Lace together your favorites on a, a little global tour. Be our tour guide. We have a couple of months. Take us on that Paul Theroux global tour. I started my travel in a library, reading. So anyone's travel should begin with reading, I think. Reading about travel looking at maps, sitting in a library, which in my case was Medford, Massachusetts, where uh, I never bought a book, but I always used the library. And I fantasized about Richard Halliburton, uh, Seven League Boots, The Royal, Royal Road to Romance, books about the Antarctic, books about the Canadian wilds and, you know. You know, I did the same thing when I was a student. Before I was any of this professional travel stuff, I was in at the U and In the big library, there was a map room with globes and big books of atlases. Yeah. And I would go there for my breaks, and I would just fantasize that way. That's right. And I came from a big family, so there's seven children in the family. And so going to the library, it's peaceful, it's quiet. You've got a comfy chair, and the main library in Medford was like that. And it was really pleasant. So, so weave that, together this so, itinerary well, for us. Re, well, reading about—I constantly thought about going away. Because of the big family, you, you want space for yourself. So I went away to college, obviously— And then I thought, I want to go farther. I joined the Peace Corps. So the Peace Corps propelled me into the middle of Central Africa. The country was called Nyasaland. So my travels and also bound up not only with reading but with writing. So reading made me a traveler. Travel helped me as a writer and liberated me. I wasn't writing about 
my hometown or my family or my miserable childhood or anything like that. I had a big subject, which was Africa. Joseph Conrad once said, I was a mere animal before I went to Africa. I could say the same thing. You have nothing to write about. You're just, who are you? You go to Africa and you find out who you are and you see these dazzling sights, elephants, people dancing, students reading books. All my students were barefoot. So then Nyasaland became Malawi and I had a subject which was post-colonial Africa. The country became independent and I published a book called Girls at Play, then Jungle Lovers, then I published novels set in Africa. I went to Singapore after that. I wrote a novel set in Singapore. St. Jack was made into a movie by Peter Bogdanovich. I then went to London. My wife was English, and I was looking for a place to go. And I needed a subject, and I thought, I know what I'll do. Looking at a map, you can take a train from Victoria Station to Paris, Paris to Istanbul, Istanbul onward. I'll just keep going till I get to Japan, you know. At that time, I tried to go to China, but that was during the uh, Cultural Revolution. It was 1973, so obviously that wouldn't have worked. But I took the train from London to Tokyo, back on the Trans-Siberian, and that was a book. So that was The Great Railway Bazaar. That was kind of your, your best hit. Well, it was my first hit, and, yeah. and I realized after I wrote it that lots of people fantasize about travel. So people wrote letters saying, I'd love to take this trip. I liked the book. The book was funny. It was great. And I had struck a nerve with that book because I just picked up and went. And I should say, Rick, that no publisher ever said to me, you know what you should do? You should go here. You should go there. I, every trip I thought of after that, the old Patagonia Express, I walked and took trains around Britain for the kingdom by the sea. I went to China, took trains. They were all off my own bat, my own money, my own bat, and my own kind of fantasy of what life would be like there. So after that, I went around the Mediterranean the Pillars of Hercules. I loved kayaking, and I had a portable kayak, a folding kayak. And so I wrote The Happy Isles of Oceania just by going from island to island. Hawaii, Easter Island, Tonga, the Marquesas, Papua New Guinea, New Zealand, Samoa, the Cook Islands, the Trobriand Islands. I took my boat, paddled around, talked to people, filled up notebooks, and came back and wrote The Happy Isles of Oceania, one, a book that I, I still is one of my favorites. I then had the yen to take return journeys, and I thought, the school that I had started teaching at in 1963, I thought, what's happening? Where are those students? What's school like? Are the windows still whole? Do they have books in the library? Uh, what are the students thinking about? So I, I decided to make a long trip of it and go from Cairo to Cape Town, but stop off at the school. And that became Dark Star Safari. Then I got to Cape Town, wrote the book. Very satisfying. And that really was decades after your first experience? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was 30 years, more yeah. than 30 years later. Yeah. And it was a trip that was difficult. I mean, to go overland from yeah. Cairo, you go down the Nile and, you know, th bad roads. I got shot at in Masabit, uh, northern Kenya. I got robbed. It was difficult. But, but I had something to write about. I mean, getting robbed, kind of dramatic, getting shot at. I was in a truck holding on. <laughs> you go to Africa and get robbed and with shot well, at. Well, but I, I remember the guy. I go to Paris and get pickpocketed. It's, it's kid stuff. I said, to the, I said to the guy, we were riding in the truck, and I said, you know, a little worried. He said, they don't want your life, Bonner. They want your shoes. In other words, these are poor right. people. Yeah. These are poor people. They're not going to kill you. They just want to rob you. Well, okay, fine. But the writers have the last word, so I had the last word. And I still think Dark Star Safari is one of my better books. Mm -hmm. I got to Cape Town, then later I thought, 
Maybe I should just continue the trip, go from Cape Town to Angola or the Congo. So I did that. That's uh, the last train to Zona Verde. Taking that trip, I thought, on the red roads of Angola, I thought, what, what about the back roads of the States? So I took a road trip around the Deep South, and I wrote Deep South as a result of that. And the road trip in the Deep South inspired me to take a road trip further, seeing the border, seeing the fence. I thought, I'll drive through the fence, I'll drive along the fence, and I'll look at Mexico, but from my own car. So that's more or less all the, all the trips, China. That, Paul, you've, you've set out boldly on these adventures. Have you ever thought, yeah, this will be a great book, and you're weeks or even months into it and think, it's just not working? Yes, yeah. What's an Several example? Time. Well, Brazil. Yeah. I thought, I'll go to Brazil, giant country, huge. Yeah. Yeah. Jungle, cities, bikinis, uh, uh, feijoada, uh, uh, I don't know, the carnival. And I thought, I'll go. And I actually spent a month or six weeks traveling around Brazil. I don't speak Portuguese. I can speak Spanish. I found it was big. It was difficult. It was ramshackle. I, I just found it's all improvisational. But a problem wasn't with Brazil. The problem was with me. My heart wasn't in it. Yeah. So I wrote a piece for a magazine about Brazil. But I had thought... You thought it might be a, a great I thought book. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone... Yeah. Peter Fleming wrote a book called uh, Brazilian Adventure about the uh, Fawcett Expedition. Yeah. But you need to have a passion for it. You need to have a context. And I would imagine the, you langu- need patience. Langu- the language skills yeah, are important. You need important. patience, the language, and, and you decided passion. you decided to cut your losses. I, I, I thought I've tried it. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a French saying, you don't have to eat the whole pudding to find out. Yeah. You know, if you eat a little bit of it and it's not working. And you got to do hit or miss or you won't have good hits. Yeah. That's that's a memorable one because I thought I had invested quite a lot in right. it. It didn't work. It didn't work. But I didn't want to write a grumpy book about Brazil. No, but your batting average is pretty good. Looking back. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Paul Theroux. He's a reasonable travel writer. He tries hard. His new book is On the Plane of Snakes, A Mexican Journey. Paul, when you're writing a book, do you have a moral to the story that that you have in the back of your mind that you want to come home with, or does it go somewhere necessarily, or do you just does it just take you where it takes you? It takes me where it takes me. I, I, I'd like to travel with a theme, but I don't want to travel with a preconceived notion of it. I would like to discover the country, discover what there is to write about. In Deep South, I realized that many people in the American South, and in, in Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, northern part of Louisiana, are living, they're living below anyone noticing it's who they are. It's a parallel world. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, right. not only very poor, no one cares about them. So there's, there's communities in the South that have very bad school, very bad health care. In our own country. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, the Delta. The yeah. Delta. Right. Say from Natchez North, Natchez, Vicksburg, and then North, Hollandale, Clarksville, Clarksville Greenville, up to Ventfus, all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, undiscovered, as far as I could see, but worth writing about. Sure. So I realized when I was traveling there, I'm writing about the underclass in America, and I began to be interested. So then I, once I saw that, I thought, well, there's poor farmers, there's people living in communities that are overlooked in South Carolina, for example, Allendale, South Carolina, where no one had anything, really. I mean, and mm-hmm. so I was less interested in the cities that were prosperous than in the country areas where people... Well, that's a theme living... in your books, I think, is getting to the, like you say in the Mexico book, the eternal Mexico. Yeah. You want to get to the yeah. the, the salt and, what do you call it, the, the spit and sawdust pubs and yeah, so on. Well, yeah, Into the small the towns. The majority of people in the world live unnoticed. 
No one cares about them. They're, they're overlooked. But those are the people that I'm kind of interested in. I'm not interested in the red carpet. I'm not interested in official travel. I don't want to meet the president. I don't want to meet, I don't want people to dance for me. I really want to hear the stories of where they live, what their grandfather did, how they got there, and what their dreams are. It's so ironic because when you're a big shot and you come to a country, they want to roll out the red carpet and yes. they want to wine and dine you and they want you to meet these mucky mucks. And, you know... You've experienced it. I've experienced I don't have time for that. I'm working on a project that's much more exciting. Absolutely. And, and when you meet important people, connected people, you realize you're meeting the wrong people. <laughs> so you, true. You're, not, you're not meeting anyone representative of the country. They're, but they're trying to influence. They, they well, they're turning nice, they, want, they <laughs> want good press, right? So, of okay. course. And they yeah. see you as a person yeah. that needs to be taken care of. Our special guest on today's Travel with Rick Steves is novelist and travel writer Paul Theroux. For more than 50 years, Paul's bestsellers have taken us with him on adventures around the world. In recent years, his books have introduced us to the people he got to know in the small towns of the American Deep South and on his road trip south of the Mexican border. He's also released a collection called Figures in a Landscape, People and Places. This week's show notes include links to Paul's earlier appearances in our program archives. It's at ricksteves.com radio. So, Paul, when you were on your publicity tour for On the Plane of Snakes, what's an example of a special moment you wrote about that seemed to really resonate with your bookstore audience? In the case of Mexico, it's going through the fence in Nogales. It's the sight of the fence. A big piece of ironmongery going through Hill and Dale with a door in it. And the idea that travel begins with going through the door, the door of your house, getting out of your car, whatever it is. But in this case, the Mexican border walking through the door in the border and finding yourself in a foreign country where the language is different, the food is different, the music is different, and going through that door. And so the door is the entrance to that adventure. So it's partly Alice through the looking glass, but it's also it's accessible to anyone or available mm -hmm. to anyone in the United States. Just go through that door, cross the border. It's right there. You can take it. It's you can right go there. there. You can have you, that experience. You're, and, you're an American. You're a privileged American. You got the money. You got the passport. You can go across. You can humanize people south of the border, and then you can go home. Yeah. But yes. you don't. But Americans don't do that. <laughs> uh, they tend not to because because they don't know what life is like. There. So this is the importance of travel, of reading. You reassure people. You say, I mean, you've spent your life doing this. You say, yeah. yes, you can go to Italy and, and, yeah. and this is what it's like. This is, You can go to Brazil. This is what it's like. But you have to be thinking about the moment. I was walking from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, Israel to West Bank in Palestine. And the, most of the traffic across this door, which had a turnstile and a guard and everything, were poor people from Palestine going to Israel to work for a good wage and then going home every night. Yes. And then a few tourists. I was there with my camera. And I had to do like four takes to do it. And I was walking back and forth. The guard could care less about me because I'm an American. And uh, I just was a whole different reality than the people whose livelihood depended on, I hope the border's open today so I can go get my job. Yeah. But for me to be there and to see the poignancy of the wealth on this side of the wall and the poverty on that side of the wall and the impact of that wall that keeps people from talking to each other and then me as a privileged wealthy tourist to be able to waltz across four times for the camera, yes. to be mindful of that. It's an exciting thing. And then as travel writers, we jot it down. And there's also the, what people call culture shock. But I've always felt that culture shock is more likely to hit you when you come home than when you go to a place. You do. You do have that culture shock because... You I've, come back to your placid little existence, your lovely chair, your wife or husband, your kitchen, 
your guacamole, <laughs> and you realize, I'm home. How strange to be home. And you have, you have a better perspective on the world. That's the well, beautiful you've had thing an experience, about travel. You've had an experience of what the world really is. That can be hard to explain to your neighbors. Yeah. Well, this is, the, this is the importance of writing. It's why filming, writing is so important. You can reassure people, and paranoia and xenophobia disappear when truth kind of intrudes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Paul Theroux about a lifetime of travel exploration, travel writing. His latest book is On the Plain of Snakes, A Mexican Journey. Paul, I, just very quickly, I'd like to just kind of play a little game about universal lessons that you could share 50 years of traveling. Uh, I know you're a big fan of crossing borders on land rather than flying over them. Walk, walking across borders. Walking across borders. Yeah. Why? Because you see what life is really like. When you're in the capital, you're, you're in people who... It's kind of the magnet for people from the, the hinterland. So if you fly from capital to capital, you're missing something very poignant. You're missing a lot. You're missing the, the country that people fly over. When you're walking across the border, you experience actually going from... What, physically going from one country to another, not flying into the airport. And that's really important because the farther you are from the capital, the more reality mm. intrudes. Now, I'll take that one step further. I was just in Ethiopia, Paul, and I learned a concept called road bias. If you stay on the one paved road between the two cities, you get your reality of that that area is this road because uh, yes. that's where it's paved and where the car can go, and that's where 90% of the travelers go. Yes. But if you drive down that rocky road for a, a, an hour off of the grid, yes. you find a whole different world. And from my travel writing needs, the rich bounty was away from the road bias. The back roads. Yeah. The back roads is where life is lived. And also, I'm not an urban type. I find city life nasty in general. And I love landscape. I also like the traditions that people have in countrysides. I, I, I mm-hmm. like to find the past, the way, as I say, the, the past exists in the hinterland. The traditions, the the, the churches, the faith, the pieties, the family life, and so forth. You find it in China. No matter how glitzy and wonderful Shanghai is, there are still villages in China where they have oxen and they're planting rice and that's and the, the boy is trying to find a wife or whatever it is. That's but, the pithy reality of life and of travel. Yeah, because that's the way the world has been. And the world is changing. It's filling up with people and with change. But these are the places that haven't changed much. And so you have a a glimpse of the way we lived, of the way life was in the past. You find that in Mexico and you find it in a lot of traditional societies. The other thing that happens in travel is you find out what the future might look like. Go to Japan, parts of China. You think this is what we have. This is what's coming. Yeah, it's what's (laughs) coming. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Paul Theroux. Paul, it's a delight. I could talk talk forever with you because from a travel writer's point of view, I have so much admiration for the determination you've had to go out there and really, really come home with a great experience and then share it with so much passion and and love in your writing. Uh, What's your next project? I'd like to go back to places that I've known, maybe do a bit of teaching Mm -hmm. and find out what people are a dreaming. Why do people want to leave their countries, among other things? What do they have in store for themselves in their countries? So I'm, I'm less interested in a long, difficult journey. I've done that. than in going to a place and being resident for a while and discovering what it's like to be a resident in that place, a teacher, perhaps. Well, we're going to stay tuned. So Paul through. thanks so much for your writing. Thanks for joining us. And best wishes on whatever travels are ahead for you. Thank you very much, Rick. Oh, 
Paul Theroux's website is paultheroux.com. That's spelled T-H-E-R-O-U-X. Where are you hoping to travel again? What places have been on your mind lately? We're checking in with listeners next at 877-333-7425. Thanks for coming along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a hundred essays. If you love Europe too, this is four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages, made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com. You viaggio co Rick Steves. I'm Alfio Di Mauro from Catania, and I was Sicilian for I Travel with Rick Steves. You viaggio co Rick Steves. It's been a heck of a year so far, so I'm glad we can at least enjoy some virtual travels together each week on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's take a few minutes right now to check in with listeners who've contacted us recently. This is our chance to follow up on what you've heard on the show and to share where you hope to travel once it's safe for the world to open up again. Joe's calling in from Homer up in Alaska. Hey, Joe. Hey, Anne. How are you? Nice to have you on. Thank you. What are your thoughts about travel lately? Travel is something right now that I am musing about in memory. Like all of us. I know I will be on the feet as soon as I can. Good for you. What kind of memories are you pondering? Well, I've been artist in residence in many, many different locations in Europe, and I've been reviewing a lot of the art that I did in those various locations and piecing together a whole new response. Okay, and you, you heard our interview about Iceland and art I in Iceland. I did, and I, I was artist in residence for three months in Reykjavik. Mm-hmm. I chose the wintertime by choice because I love winter. And the man who spoke last weekend, at least I heard it last weekend, said that there wasn't anything to do in Reykjavik. And I just went, no, wait, wait, that's mm-hmm. not right. There's uh, tons to do in Reykjavik. Good. Well, he's a guy that lives in ice caves and loves to be out under the stars. But, of course, Reykjavik has some great, surprisingly impressive culture. What would you recommend to be sure that we give Reykjavik a fair shake? Okay, well, I love the museum that holds the sagas, which is called the National Center for Cultural Heritage. The yeah. Icelandic sagas, the Norwegian sagas are held there, and that's wonderful to see. Mm-hmm. And also the Natural History Museum has a wonderful Viking Arctic fact collection so one can see all the traditional art forms of the viking culture pre-christian viking culture and it's very very exciting and extends your frame of reference very very wide across the history of the entire scandinavian complex yeah and, and the, then the, the, the artifacts the, are really good too aren't they i mean absolutely absolutely artifacts. absolutely so there's tons to do on that level Now, I was there in winter, so I brought my skis with me, and there was a park down the street from where my studio was, and every time it snowed, I would happily cross-country ski for two or three hours. Mm. And this is in in Reykjavik. You Mm. don't have to go outside of Reykjavik. It's just there. Nice. And also down the street from me was an outdoor swimming pool, and I cannot pronounce it in Icelandic, sorry, but the English translation is the place where the women wash the clothes. Okay. And it's a hot springs, and you can swim in the middle of the winter in the darkness outdoors. 
you know, everybody goes to the real fancy uh, spa out by the airport and they spend $100 to do it, and the Correct. locals just kind of laugh at that, and they go, you know, we've got public pools right downtown that are just gorgeous. Exactly, and 50 cents. Yeah, yeah, so forget the Blue Lagoon. Blue Lagoon, $100 or... or, or oh, yeah, s- it's absurdly expensive. It wasn't that expensive when I was there because yeah. that was before the big tourist boom yeah. hit Iceland. Um, but now it's ridiculous. Yeah. I wouldn't even go y- there. You um, know, Joe, those sagas are amazing. And they, I know. And the artifacts, you just... It re- reminds you, It's in some ways, it's like the longest existing parliament or, or, or exactly. around, and they've got documents from those times. Exactly. And exactly. They, and they've survived. It's, and to think that the country almost had no modern architecture until uh, the middle of the 20th century. I mean, it was just sod roofs and uh, correct. humble people, and then correct. it became an important Air Force base in World War II. I know, and that's part of what makes it so rich, and that the cultural mm-hmm. inheritance of the Viking period is still carried over into mm-hmm. contemporary times. It's not something that's been lost to time. Right. It's ongoing, and you feel it. And when you go to museums like where the Viking material is held, you realize it's present, it's not past. And I I just love going to the museums in the capital city of almost any country before going out into the countryside. And then when you get to those evocative places, you understand the historical and and cultural context. Correct. Absolutely correct. And Mm -hmm. because I was there for three months, I had a good long time to get to know people, which is one of my most favorite parts of traveling in Europe, the grocer, the postman, yeah. you know, the person down the street watching, washing the clothes, you know, and that makes it also wonderful. In Reykjavik, you can walk all over the whole city. Reykjavik, I love the way you say that. <laughs> are you are you Scandinavian? Do you you have an advantage? Well, you know, when I came back from Iceland, I actually was speaking Icelandic very simply, but I was speaking it. Um, now I've lost it because it's been some time. Well, you still have the Reykjavik. Yeah, I down. know. Oh, I that know. sounds like my Norwegian relatives saying it. I'm going to see cousins in the Reykjavik. <laughs> 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 All right. Hey, well, thank you for reminding us that Reykjavik has some beautiful artifacts. And, um, you know, you can you can do a lot of things in, in Reykjavik that are not artifacts. They're just like um, panels and instructive things on walls that teach Correct. you about the about the whales or the puffins All or whatever. That. But they have amazing artifacts that go back a thousand years for those Viking settlers, and it just really blows you away. And then you go out into the countryside, and you can ma- imagine them gathering together, all the, the warlords coming together and raising their swords to vote on this or that issue. And uh, it's Absolutely. just amazing setup. Yeah, so. the past becomes the present. Yep. With a good museum. Okay, Joe, thanks so much. Okay, Take care. thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Rosanna's calling in from Miami. We're going from Alaska all the way down to Florida. Rosanna, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you, considering everything. Have you been to Iceland lately? I was in Iceland in the late August 2019, so about a year great. ago I was in Iceland. Yes. How was your experience? My experience in Iceland was fantastic. I was there for a week, and I kind of knew what to expect, but I didn't know that I was going to like it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I stayed in Reykjavik, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I took every single tour that I could, considering there was late summer. I missed the northern lights, but I did go to the planetarium, which is called Pe- Perla. And yep. uh, you get the experience there, and you get like an ice cave, and you see the whole uh, yep. flora and fauna. I did do the Blue Lagoon at the expensive price, but I loved it. It's I great. Enjoyed it, it is very great. Much. It's just a splurge, and it's the it's kind of the it's sort of you got to do it. People ask you, you know, did you go to the Blue Lagoon? 
Yeah, I did. It was it's a it's a nice setup. You know that that uh, planetarium you're talking about. It's the uh, easy kind of cheating way to see the aurora borealis. They've got great videos of it, and you you get a sense of it. You go there. Um, if it's the same place I'm thinking about, and it shows you all of the cliches you're looking for when you go to Iceland, and it's it's expensive and kind of iffy to actually go out and try to see the aurora borealis, but they have exhibits about it that gives you a good sense of it. Oh yes, no, it, it was it was very good. I actually enjoyed it. I did tour the city, but I but again, I I went out. I did uh, the Golden Circle. I did a yep. bunch of wa- waterfalls, um, and yep. I did a volcano, which was a unique experience um how do you do a volcano (laughs) well it's uh yeah i know it's um it's a volcano that's been dormant for over four thousand years Uh and it's called inside the volcano and i think the icelandic name and i apologize if i'm going to you know chop it down but it's uh i think it's called trinukagigur and sounds good to me you actually well, it sounds good to me, too. I hope I said it right, if, if there are any Icelandic listeners hey, right now. Hey, uh, um, Rosanna, your Reykjavik is good enough, so I'll, give you, I'll just give you the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you. Uh, you actually go to, uh, like to the home office where they um, set you up and they give you um, like a raincoat and all that, and you hike for an hour. You go to a base camp where they put your uh, hard hat with a headlamp and your security gear, and then you go into a lift. And it goes all the way down 120 meters. Um, In, into the, the crater? The bo- yes, into the crater. Wow. Well, that's pretty so exciting. So you go down. It's, it, it, it's fantastic. 120 meters. So you see the different colors of the minerals on the walls, you know, just because you're going from the newest lava mm-hmm. colors on top all the mm-hmm. way down. Is it and steaming? And you get a chance. No, no, no. It's, 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 it's actually chilly down there. It's very dead. It, it, it hasn't blown for a long time. Okay, I get it. Exactly. It's absolutely dead. It's very damp. It's cold. But you walk around, uh, bring your hiking boots just because those uh, rocks are slippery. Uh, mm-hmm. But you can, you know, take some fantastic photos. You're there mm-hmm. for about, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes. Then they take you all the way up. And then you go back to base camp and they um, welcome you with a, a bowl of chew of amazing, delicious, homemade Icelandic lamb soup. Oh, you know, that was, Rosanna, so, that was a highlight for me was the soup in the countryside. I was driving around the uh, Golden Circle. I stopped at a farmhouse, and they, they were, you know, welcoming tourists. You could see the farm life. And they were serving just, it was soup and bread and water. And it's, you know, it's pretty um, rustic and, and expensive, and this is hearty and simple. It was such good soup, and the bread was great, and beautiful butter. And, uh, and just in the farmland around us, it was a beautiful experience. I was blown away by the quality of the food in Iceland. I think it has to do with the water. It has to do with the way they grow their animals. It has to do with the way they grow their, their food. Um, it's just the, the quality of the food and the flavor. It's uh, second to none. Yeah. I, anything I ate, anything you can eat from coffee to chocolate to the, the humble soup. Uh, to the rye bread that they bake in the mm. in the in the soil, it's mm. just it's just the food is out, outstanding. Hey Rosanna, thanks so much for uh, sharing your experience in Iceland. Happy travels. Thank you, Rick. Take care. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. I'd love checking in with our traveling listeners. And Steve's calling in from Las Cruces. Hey, Steve. Hello, Rick. Good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for your call. Steve, I, I understand you live in uh, in New Mexico. How, how's life there yeah. during during this uh, crisis? Well, um, it's hot, and uh, we're very near the Mexican border. Where we are in Las Cruces, we're about 
three miles from the Mexican border, about 50 miles from El Paso, uh, on a high desert plateau. Mm. And um, everybody is sort of um, practicing social distancing. We're trying to do all the right things. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, a lot of the, uh, the tourist business in New Mexico has been shut down because of the travel restrictions, which is unfortunate because it's a beautiful state. We love it. Oh, I know there's lots to see and do there, and it's just... I think patience is my middle name lately. We've much as we're eager to travel, much as uh, we've got a lot of people in tourism that are suffering because of the loss of revenue. Uh, if ever haste makes waste, I think it's right now as we get our act together and, and get a grip on this virus, and then we'll have some more travelers coming in and, and invigorating the local economy. But we've got something more important to do right now, and it's get on top of this virus. How are you doing with your travel dreams in this crisis? We, uh, this year, we had to cancel trips to Scotland and Morocco, and we had to also miss the uh, graduation of our granddaughter mm. um, from Indiana University. So mm -hmm. that's been unfortunate, but uh, we're going to go again when we can. That's a good attitude. Where are you going to be going? What are you dreaming about? One of the things that, we, well, we're still going to try to do Morocco, my wife is anyway, with mm -hmm. some of her friends. And uh, one of the few things that I haven't done yet is the um, Paris to Normandy trip. Mm. Been meaning to do that. Haven't haven't been able to get for that the uh, D-Day landing uh, sites. Is yep. that would that be we your main goal? That. Yeah. One thing I'd recommend there, Steve, when you do go to Normandy, there are so many amazing guides, and they just live and breathe and sleep all that Normandy D-Day landing, you know, uh, history. And the museums are just amazing and every time I go back there's new museums and, and there's all these aficionados and these people so passionate about that World War II history it is really worthwhile and I, I would just highly recommend hiring a private guide for a day to show you around and, and walk you through those fields and it just really makes it so vivid and so relaxing and, and so meaningful. We'd love to do that. We've done some of the um, World War One museums in uh, Belgium and France Mm -hmm. And so we're certainly looking forward to that. And also, my wife's best friend's father was a C-47 pilot mm -hmm. in D-Day. He dropped paratroopers over Normandy. Wow. And her father was in the Battle of the Bulge. So we've had families that was uh, in, certainly involved in the war. Yeah, there are museums that focus on the paratroopers that went behind enemy lines and disrupted things uh, to soften the Nazi defenses so that our troops could get through. There's an amazing museum in the town of Caen, C-A-E-N, uh, which is uh, like a memorial and a museum together. And it's the most powerful sort of preparation for your visit to Normandy. And uh, I would mention that the town of Bayeux is a beautiful place to stop. And when you go to Bayeux, you're, you're there with the Bayeux Tapestry. You know, we go to Normandy to think of uh, people from England coming into France, but uh, 900 years earlier, people from France went over to England, and that was, of course, the Norman Conquest and uh, the Battle of Hastings. And uh, the Bayeux Tapestry there in, in uh, the town of Bayeux gives you another look at Normandy that we don't want to forget either. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll get through it. It's just going to take a little while, I guess. Uh, in every lifetime, there's a period like this. I see 2020 as kind of the 1940 of our lifetimes, and we just, uh, we're just half a year into it, and it's going to take a little while longer. We will do it. That's the attitude. Thanks, Steve. Keep on traveling, Thank even you. if you're just staying home Thanks. for a while. Bye now. We're checking in with our listeners on their hopes for future travels right now on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-7425. If you'd like to write us, our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. 
Nancy in Warwick, Rhode Island, emailed us, and she writes, When traveling to Eastern Europe, or anywhere really, can you suggest a small token of friendship or appreciation that we can share, but that wouldn't be too burdensome to travel with? You know, Nancy, a lot of Americans are very thoughtful, and they they, they want to be good guests. And uh, in the old days, I remember when I was a kid, we'd bring people a Kennedy 50-cent piece or, or some little gift from our state. And you can still do that. If, you, if you've got something that represents your state or your region or your city, that's kind of fun to do. Um, and it's a little token of uh, just a little bit of a souvenir from your visit that your friends can uh, remember you with. But I find that uh, the people I visit overseas are, are really not impressed by a gift. What they want is our, our friendship and our presence and our attention and our curiosity about their life and our willingness to share about our life. So I like to, you know, show photographs of my family and my world. I like to take pictures of us all together and make sure they get a copy of those pictures. I like to send them a postcard after I've left, uh, letting them know what I'm doing with my travels and thanking them again for the, the time together. But I wouldn't really worry too much about uh, taking along uh, small tokens of appreciation for the hospitality you will receive. The best thing is to be just a charming guest and uh, to um, to share because people have you in because they're curious about you and they want to be friends. Oh, I want to be a friend of yours mm, a little bit more I want to be a pal of yours mm, a little bit more I want to be your buddy, buddy Though the road be smooth or muddy I want to be a friend of yours Mmm, a little bit, mmm, a little bit, mmm, a little bit more Let's take another minute to travel from Alaska to Florida with listeners who've recently sent us haiku poems they've written. You can send us your own original travel haiku at ricksteves.com slash radio. Paula Recchia of Yuma, Arizona, shares memories of Alaska in both the summer and winter in these haiku poems she sent us. Arctic Circle Trip, both sun and full moon at midnight, tundra mosquitoes, scrape frost on windshield, red lights up night sky all around, warm glow for cold night. Mona Oje of San Diego was planning to celebrate retirement with a trip to Italy, Slovenia, and Greece. She sends us this haiku instead. Season of travel, or so I thought, Corona. Season of dreaming. Regina Ann Cooper of Heartland, Vermont, also had her travel dreams dashed by the COVID closures. Longing to travel. Plans born in COVID abyss. Where to go next year? Jesse Drago from Miami shares the scene from Florida in these haiku. Soaked by surf and sun, wide stretch of tan sand beckons. Reach Daytona Beach. Pause. Walk. Pause. Wait times. Fewer fans to share Walt's world in time of COVID. Florida's Key West. Fight this siren's call to crawl. Endless manianas. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton and Kazmura Hall. We get website support from Amerikitnikon, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Gretchen Straub read our listener travel haiku. You'll find more online at ricksteves.com radio.
Hey, I'm Rick Steves. You can experience my favorite European people, places, and stories in my newest book, For the Love of Europe. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com.